Here we go. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7 this morning. We've been working our way through this chapter for a couple weeks now. Um, that's okay because I think it's been really powerful. And we talked last week about uh, this story. So kind of the lead into the story is God has... Uh, appeared to Moses in a burning bush in the wilderness, right? De Moses was shepherding sheep. He'd been there for 40 years. God appeared in this burning bush and began to speak to Moses. And the first thing that we saw was God was like, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And we ended last week with this idea that there's this huge separation between God and Moses. It was like Moses was like sitting there like, oh, no. He's like bowing in fear and reverence. And, and there was this idea that there was like a depth and a greatness to God that you would never understand until you recognize that there's a huge separation. And actually, there's a huge freedom and life-giving understanding of knowing that there is a God and you are not him. Right? You're not in control of all of it. You can't do all of it. There's an actual like blessing of living life, understanding that you are not the God of the universe and the world doesn't revolve around you. And so we talked about last week how... That's kind of hardwired into us. And even if you don't believe in God, like there's kind of an understanding, like when you stand and look at this wonderful sunset or you stand on a mountaintop or you look at the Grand Canyon or you watch the ocean waves crash on huge cliffs or something like that, there's this magnitude of what's happening in front of you that makes you feel really small. And there's this huge separation between the two. Like I'm small, that thing's huge and wonderful and grand and awesome and it feels right and wonderful and life-giving all at the same time. And in some sense, that's what worship is. It's the recognition and celebration of the separation between you and God. It's almost like, in some ways, we are thanking God that we are, he's not like us. Like, praise God that you're not like me. Praise God that you're way better than me, uh, that you don't see things like I see them. But that's not where we want to live. Because when we recognize the separation, that's only actually half of what it means to know God. When we talk about our mission statement as a church, and our mission statement, if you don't know, is we help people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. When we talk about knowing God, there's actually two ways to know God. Not two ways to know God, but two aspects of knowing God. There's the information, so the things you know about God, and then there's the experience. Right? Like if you ask me like, hey, tell me about your wife. Like I could tell you information. Well, she's five, six and she has green eyes and like she, you know, wears this color all the time. And like, or if you said, tell me about your wife and I told you a story, that would be a much different kind of understanding, right? That's both knowledge of my wife, but there's an experience and an information that are different. And unless you know both, you don't really know the person that you're talking about. And so when we talk about knowing God, there's this separation from God that is great to know about, but then there's going to be an experience side that we're going to talk about today. And uh, that's where we're going to jump in, verse 7 of chapter 3. So God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush, and it says this, verse 7 of chapter 3, Then the Lord said to Moses, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. So the people of 
The Hebrew people were in slavery in Egypt, and that's what God is saying he's seen right now. He says, I know their sufferings, verse 8, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So here's what's amazing about our God. Not only is he great and awesome and separate from us in all the most incredible ways, he is also at the very same time near to us and with us and understanding of us and our situations in ways that are beyond comprehension. Like he gets us. We talked a couple of weeks about, about the idea of being seen and being heard and being understood. God sees and hears and understands in ways that you probably don't even realize he sees and hears and understands. He's close and near to us beyond all your comprehension. And so he's completely separate from us and yet simultaneously incredibly near to us. And that's such a powerful thing for us to understand because the separation from us provides the potential Right? The fact that he is not like us is what provides the potential. But then the closeness and the nearness provides the opportunity for that potential to be realized. If he was just some crazy, awesome God that just stayed up in the, world, in the heavens somewhere, like beyond our comprehension, and never stepped down into our world, then we would never know him like we are called to know him. We'd just be like, yeah, he's amazing, we think. I mean, we've never seen it. Because... He doesn't get involved with us at all. But not only is he great and awesome, but he is close and near and steps into the things in your life that provide the opportunity for that realized potential. When we combine the two things, the potential of an awesome God with the nearness of a God who knows and loves you, then you begin to understand what it actually means to be the people of God. When you know the things that you know about God, when you know the information about God, and then you walk through life with him and you experience him coming through in the ways that he promises to come through, then you actually start to know God. We've all, we've all been there where we like, we're like talking to somebody like, and they mention a person's name and they're like, oh, you know them? And you're like, uh, and you hesitate, right? Because you've maybe heard of them or you just met them one time or you've just heard their name, or maybe you had an interaction with them that like wasn't super positive and you don't want to be unfair. So you're like, well, I've, I've met them once. And I think a lot of people live that way with God. Like, yeah, I know about God. Yeah, I know. I, I've, I've heard of him. Heard nothing but good things, really. It's just all the things people say are awesome. And here's why I spend so much time on this. I think the danger is that we settle for trusting in a potentially awesome God. Like we, we just, we know that God is potentially great. We know God could potentially work in our circumstances. We know God is potentially with us and near us. But we settle for knowing about how awesome our God could possibly be without the intention of actually walking into situations that would allow him to be awesome on our behalf. We settle for knowing about God instead of having an actual relationship with him. And we build our lives intending to never put ourselves in situations where God would have to prove himself awesome. Like, if you think about all the things that we see of God doing in this story so far, we would avoid those at all costs. 
Like, oh, there's no freedom. Oh, there's political oppression. Oh, there's difficulty. Oh, there's consequence of death. Oh, there's 40 years in the desert where it doesn't feel like you're doing anything. All the self-help books, all the culture, all the American way of doing life would avoid all of these things. Right? We'd be like, nope, don't want that. Nope, let's set ourselves up so we don't have to spend 40 years anywhere that isn't accomplishing something. No, set our, we want to be successful, on time, get things done, have a house, 2.5 kids, whatever the number is now, right? Boat, lakes, place. We want to, like, there, we avoid the things that make God look awesome on our behalf at all costs. And I think we have consequences in our lives because of that. I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, uh, my parents were divorced. So my mom lived here in Spokane, and my dad lived uh, kind of out by Lake Ponderay at the end of this super long, windy, narrow dirt road. Now, my dad's one of these guys who always has to find a deal on anything, right? Anybody, though, like, you got some of those in the crowd? Yeah. They're like, and it's like every time you talk to him, they tell you about the thing they just bought and how much it costs. Like, that's my dad. But he finds these amazing deals. Good for him. So he found this black Audi station wagon at a time when that wasn't, like, really a thing. I'm kind of old, so that was, like, a long time ago, a couple decades, right? And it went, like, 200 miles an hour, and it was, like, basically brand new, leather seats, and, like, it was super nice. And, um, well, it went 200 miles an hour on the right type of road. It definitely didn't go 200 miles an hour at the end of long, dusty, narrow dirt roads, that was like the worst place for it. In fact, if you've ever driven a black car on a dirt road, it just, this, it was a terrible, terrible choice, right? And, and so what happened was my stepmom got tired of washing it all the time because it would drive for like two seconds on the dirt road and it looked so dirty and nasty that it just stayed parked in our garage and we would drive the other cars that we had except for once a year when we drove to Seattle to see my grandma. So for 10 years of my childhood, we had this incredible car that sat in the garage for 350 days a year. And then we drive it to Seattle and back. And that was it. And it was like this, like it has the potential. We just never intend on using it. We just, it, ha, it could be this amazing thing. Like it goes so fast. It went so much faster than any other car we had. And we never got to see it because we never walked in the kind of life that would make it useful to us. And I think we do that with God a lot. We never actually plan on living the type of life that would actually reveal the power of God because we avoid the types of situations that would give him opportunity to prove himself powerful on our behalf. There was a lot of P's in that sentence. I struggled. Lots of what we do as church leaders is to encourage people to create opportunities for them to walk in those types of situations where you see God be powerful on your behalf, right? And sometimes we get misunderstood. Like as a pastor, because I'm up here, I'm like, join a small group. Like, come to church, right? Like, volunteer. And people are like, you're just trying to build your own kingdom. And I'm not. Like, I mean, I, I pray against that all the time. Of course, I'd like more people to come to church and more people to volunteer, and more people to be in small groups. But mostly, I've seen the fruit of stepping into those things and watching God be faithful on your behalf. Because if you don't think you've ever prayed before, try leading a small group when you don't think you can. Then you'll pray. Like, people are going to come, and they're going to expect something of me. And I can't just, like, 
uh, right? Like those are moments that those of you who have done it have watched God come through in crazy situations. I just had conversations with people who are leading small groups this week and they're like, there's people in our small groups who are giving their lives to Jesus. They're following Jesus. They want to get baptized. This is incredible. And if you never sign up for a small group, you never lead a small group, you never serve, you just come to church, you sit in the back and leave before the party. I know we don't do that because we don't, you know, we're a small church, but like some people, that's all their Christianity is. And they don't understand what it is to be the people of God because they never walk into these situations where you might have conflict in a relationship. You might actually have to work through something with somebody. You might actually have to wait for something. You might actually have to trust in God to do something. And when you walk in those situations where God has to be powerful on your behalf, guess what? He shows up. He shows up. I believe God is this good. And so the question is, why don't we live the lives and make choices where we would have opportunity to prove himself that good? I, as a culture today, it's really unfortunate, but so many people's Christianity is just defined by the fact that they vote red and they go to church on Sunday when they got nothing else going on. It's like, yeah, if I got nothing else going on, I'll make it to church. And I'm just telling you, like, you got a really nice car sitting in the garage, not being used. You're worshiping a potentially awesome God. And those are great conversations. Like we got kids and high school kids and junior hires here. Like I love having my kid, my kids in junior high, he's sitting here right now listening to me say this. So when we get home this afternoon, like he's going to call me if I'm full of crap. It's like, dad, you just got up there and told everybody, like you got to walk in ways that prove God awesome. Like if we aren't walking by faith, your kids are going to sniff it out. God is calling Moses into that type of life right here. Right? This type of life where it's going to have to be God that steps into the area of awesomeness and makes a way where there is no way. Otherwise, it won't get done. And look at what God calls, verse 10, where God calls Moses into. God says this to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, please see this. Please, 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 please see this. Because there might be this potential when I said the thing that I just said about living a life in a way that makes God, like that provides opportunity for God to come through in awesome ways. You feel an immense amount of pressure on yourself. Right? You're like, oh man, Jared's just heaping this guilt on me. Like, he just has all these expectations for me and he just wants me to do more stuff and he's just telling me, like, I'm not doing enough. Stop. That's not what we see God calling Moses into right here. What did God call Moses to do? Did God call Moses to save his people? Shake your head, no. Look at, look at verse eight. God says, I have come down to deliver these people. I am, I'm doing this thing, Moses. I have come down to deliver these people, to bring them out of slavery, to bring them into a promised land. So this is something God is already doing. This is something God says he is already doing. 
So the call on Moses' life is not to do anything, but to join God in what God is already doing. Somebody say amen. amen. Right? Like this is not, hey, Moses, I got stuff you need to do and you're slacking. No, God's like, Moses, I'm doing this thing. Would you like to be a part? That's the invitation of God. Right? God is doing something in this season, in this time, in this place, and God is calling Moses to be. It's like God's like, hey, Moses, you want to be involved? You want, you want to know me in a way you've never known me before? You want to know when you read faithful and true and never leave you or forsake? You want to know that verse in a whole new way? Come be a part of this thing that I'm doing. Every time God ever calls anyone to do anything, he's calling us to join him in what he's already doing. Please don't forget that. He's not calling you to go Lone Ranger all by yourself. God is a terrible delegator. In fact, God doesn't delegate. He doesn't delegate anything because he's omnipotent and omnipresent, right? So he doesn't need to delegate. But he does call you into joining him and doing the thing that he's already doing in the world. Now, Moses... Interestingly, clearly hears the call of God. There's not a misunderstanding about what it is God is calling him to do. But Moses hears the call of God, and Moses says what? He says, who am I? Why does Moses say that? Translation, Moses saying, I don't think I could do it. That's what he's saying, right? That's why you say, who am I? Like, God's like, come be a part of this. And Moses is like, ah, I don't think I could do it. I don't think this is me. Right? I got stuff going on. We're, it's a busy season for us. We got a lot. And it's nah, not, not good timing, God. Right? That's what Moses is saying. I don't think it's for me. And as Christians, we don't do something or not do something based on whether or not we think we can do it. I'm just like trying to tell you in the nicest possible way. Like, if you're thinking, like, do I think I can do it or do I think I can not do it? That's actually the wrong question to be asking. We do something or don't do something because we feel the leading of the Spirit of God. Can I do it is the wrong question. Is God calling me to this is the right question. And so often, God is calling us to things, and he just has this like general consensus about how he's calling us to live our lives. And we're like, I don't know if I'm supposed to do it or not. I remember this story uh, from a buddy of mine who pastors a big church in Colorado. And this guy came to him and he's like, hey, like there's a bunch of kids in my neighborhood who just don't have enough school supplies uh, and uh, they're poor kids. And I was just thinking if we just bought a whole bunch of backpacks and like filled them with stuff, you guys have probably heard of programs similar to this. And we could like buy them pencils and books and all this different stuff. And then we could put like just a little reminder that God loves them in there, maybe a Bible or something in their backpack with all their other stuff. And, and he's like, I just don't know if I should do it or not. And the pastor was like, so you think that was Satan? And he's like, well, I just don't know. And he's like, you think Satan's behind? Like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the Christians to love their community. <laughs> right? Like, no, it's clearly not. Right? And so all this, like, I hear this all the time. People like, uh, we ask for an opportunity. Like, oh, I want to do this. And people like, I don't know if I'm supposed to do it. Like, just, just go back up, zoom out a little bit. Right? Loving people, like serving others, like sacrificially. Like, you don't think God's calling you to do that? Building community, like praying for other people. Like, when we say, like, hey, join a small group, you're like, I don't have time. Like, 
okay, there, there's certain situations where that's valid. But I think that if it was me in that situation, I would have to have God to tell me he doesn't want me to do that more than I would have to have him tell me he wants me to do that. Right? Like my guess would be when you come to a church and they're like, we got small groups starting up. And you're like, mm, God's really going to have to tell me to do that. Wait, God's going to have to tell you to love and pray and worship and show up and build community. Like he's going to have to tell you to do that. Or has he already told you to do that? Right? So those are the situations. And again, please don't hear me that like I'm heaping burdens upon you and like having expectations for you that you're not meeting. I'm just saying there is a potential that you live your life as if God could be awesome and don't step into these clear situations he put in front of you to actually see his awesomeness take place. And the funny thing is God doesn't even answer Moses's question. Right? God doesn't say, like, Moses, you could do it. You're a big boy, buddy. You can make it. Here's a participation ribbon. Right? Moses is like, who am I? And God's like, I'm going to be with you. God doesn't even tell Moses who he is. God's not like, let me tell you who you are, Moses. Who do you see when you look in the mirror? Tell yourself, I can do it. Right? He's not doing any of that. All God says is, I'm going to be with you, Moses. The people of God are not the people of God because of their own qualifications. We don't do the things we do for God because we think we can do them. It's the power and calling of God that make the people of God the people of God. And look at what happens. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people, this is kind of funny too. If I come to the people of Israel, verse 13, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? So this is great. God calls Moses to lead a million people out of slavery in opposition to the most powerful dynasty on the planet Earth at the time. And Moses' greatest concern is, what are people going to think about me when I say this to them? Right? That's what his root concern is. He's like, I'm worried when I go back to the people and I say, hey, God came to me in a bush and we're supposed to leave that they're not going to listen to me. Like, I'm worried about what I'm going to tell these people. I'm worried about what they're going to think of me. Isn't that funny? Well, it's kind of funny. It's kind of sad at the same time because it's what most of us are worried about all the time, isn't it? What other people think of us? We're really concerned about what people are going to say. Moses is already assuming that the people won't listen to him and won't do what he said. And he's like, when they don't listen to me, I'm scared that they're going to not accept, well, there was a bush out there that was on fire and it told me to come. And so I would like to have a little bit more weight behind the thing that I'm saying so that they will think more highly of me. They will listen to me. And this is actually so helpful for me. Moses is not Superman. Right? Moses was not born for this. Moses didn't have like some supernatural gifting where he was like, I always knew from the moment I set foot on this earth that I was born to do this. Like, that's not Moses. Moses is like, actually, I don't think I could do this. I don't think I could ever do that. I don't think they're going to listen to me. I'm a little worried about what they're going to think of me, to be honest, God. So when you feel that same call of God on your heart and your fears come up like this, I don't know if I could teach a kid's class in children's ministry. I don't know if I could sing on stage, right? I don't know if I could run the sound. What if it feeds back and everybody looks at me, right? Like, good, you're in the same boat as Moses, right? I don't know if you'd be a missionary across the world at some Asian country where they don't even allow Christians to move in. Like, I don't know if I could do that. Good, you're on the same page as Moses. 
These are the types of people God uses. It's actually really refreshing that Moses had some people pleaser in him, right? There was weaknesses in Moses. He wasn't some emotionless robot that didn't have any fears or concerns about this. He actually asked God, what do I do when they question me, when they won't listen to me? And God says this, look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, at first glance, this is a little bit weird, right? It's a, oh, it's a riddle. I love riddles. No, it's not a riddle. Love you, Donnie. But then think about what God would have said or he could have said. He could have said, I am God, but the Egyptians have lots of gods, right? So they, the Egyptians have been like, join the club. Right? Okay, we got another God, right? The Egyptians had the God of the crops and the God of the moon and the God of the sun and the God of the harvest and blah, 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 blah. Like all these gods, God of the Nile, right? They considered Pharaoh his own God, right? So if God's like, I'm a God too, then they're like, oh, cool. Just build another temple, more the merrier. And God is not a God like the Egyptian gods are gods. Like they're not even close. They're not comparable, and it's not even like God is a better version of what they call God. God like, we're not, in the, we're not working with the same material here. This is something completely different. He's not a better version of the Egyptian pagan gods. They aren't even real. So God doesn't even compare himself to those gods or what they call gods. He doesn't compare himself to humanity. He doesn't compare himself to anything. And that's the point. Basically, what God is saying is, I'm incomparable. You can't compare me to anything. That's what he's saying. I'm beyond any capacity that you have to describe me or understand me, Moses. It, it, it kind of seems like, I don't know if you ever, I did this exercise that I was studying this week. If I went back to like cavemen and like Adam and Eve times or whatever and tried to explain to them what an iPhone was, have you ever thought about how hard that would be? It's like, no, no, it's an iPhone. And they're like, uh, is it like a stick? And you're like, no, it's not like a stick. It's an iPhone. Like, is it like a rock? And it's like, mm, yeah, it's like a rock, but better. Right? Like, I don't know how you describe the idea. And that's just human to human, just separated by a couple thousand years. Right? Imagine going from God to human and trying to explain. Right? God is like, I'm just telling you, Moses, there's nothing that you can compare me to. There's nothing that will give you a glimpse into what I'm like or the knowledge of me. And at first, when you're thinking that, you're like, I am who I am. That doesn't make any sense. But after some thoughts, it's really powerful because there's nothing comparable to our God. Humanity has no frame of reference to understand God. We really don't. All we know of him is what he chooses to allow us to know of him. Like, we don't have this big picture. Like, we know these things. In fact, Jesus even said it when Jesus was on the earth. He's like, it's kind of like the wind. You can't see the wind. All you could do is see the things that happen because of the wind. And that was Jesus' explanation of how God is working in the world. It's like, nothing has actually changed from Exodus 3, 14 and 15 to 2022. We don't actually know any more about God than we did back then. Like, we don't understand him in ways that Moses never got. Like, he's still so far beyond our understanding. There's almost nothing he can do right now to help us understand. 
Like he can give us little bits and pieces, and he has. He's been like, I'm the God of Abraham. Did you see how the way I worked in Abraham's life? The God of Jacob, the God of Israel, right? The God of Moses, right? The God of the people of Israel. Like he's given us those little glimpses into the things that he's done, but we don't actually know what he's like, right? We know his character and how he works in the world, but we have no understanding of the entirety of who he is. I almost think sometimes we have a greater appreciation of how little we know about God when we think about the things he isn't, right? When we talk about the things like, he'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll never let us down. He'll never be anything less than good. He'll never do anything in your life that's not loving. Or even this one, I was thinking about this one this week. I'm 40 now, so I spent a lot of time talking about what I used to be right? So I'm like, I used to be fast, or I used to be able to jump high. I used to be good at basketball. I used to, you know, all these things that I used to be. And so I just end up saying all the time, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was. I don't know if any of you can relate, but I was a lot of things, and I'm not anymore. God doesn't have that problem. He never used to be anything. Because like he says in this passage, he is. He is currently. There's nothing that he used to be that he no longer is. There's no fading. There's no changing. There's no capacity that he had once that he doesn't have now. He always has been and always will be and is currently. That's amazing. That's so much different than what we are. We're constantly in this state of will be, used to be, was, and God's no, I'm is. I, I am. I, I am right now. He is right now. And if your brain is hurting right now, I, I apologize. But that's kind of to be expected, right? When you're explaining this thing who is incomparable, who is beyond comparison, who is nothing like anything you've ever understood or will ever understand, you would expect that there would be no comparison. And then God says this at the end of verse 14. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay, so God says, say to the people, I am has sent me to you. And then God says, this is my name in verse 15. Say to the people, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob sent me to you. This is my name forever. So what happens is God actually gave Moses his name. God has a name and he gave it to Moses. And it's at the very, well, middle there of verse 15. It says, say this to the people of Israel. And in your Bible, it says the Lord. Do you see how the word Lord is capitalized? All four letters, L-O-R-D, are capitalized. You should see that in your Bible if you got an ESV, if you got some other translation, I'm not sure. But the reason is that is the name of God. Okay, that is his actual name that he spoke to Moses. Later on in your Bible, when God gave the Ten Commandments, the second commandment was do not take the Lord's name in vain. And the Jews are really concerned about doing that. So when they wrote the name of the Lord, they left out all the vowels. So every copy of the scripture from that point on, they left out the vowels of the name of God so that even 
If you were accidentally using it in vain, you wouldn't because you weren't actually saying it. So when you take out the vowels of God's names, you're left with four consonants. It's yod he vah he in Hebrew, uh, transliterated something along the lines of in English like Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H, something like that. But we don't know what the vowels are. We never have, we never will. So we kind of don't actually know what the name of God is. So every time your Bible runs into the name of God, it says the Lord and it'll capitalize L-O-R-D. So you know that's the actual name of God. Now people through the generations have come up with their own ideas of how to put the vowels back in, like Jehovah is one of them, Yehovah, Yahweh, but those are all guesses. It's called the Tetragrammaton, right? Just in case you care. Uh, tetra meaning four, right? Four letters. It's the name of God. And I usually don't do this, but I think this is powerful to understand. If you flip in your Bible over to John chapter eight, so I'm going to give you time to do this. We never do this. I think there's plenty in the passage we usually are in, but John chapter eight, if you have a blue or a white Bible, um, sorry, I was in Joshua. That's not John. I'll give you the page number as soon as I get there. John chapter 8, page 522, if you got a blue or a white Bible that we gave you. And we're going to start in verse 56. Okay, the short version of the story is, this is 2,000 years after Moses was on the earth. A guy named Jesus, maybe you've heard of him, is living on the planet, right? He claims to be the savior of the whole world. Right? And they are arguing with him. The religious leaders at the, at the time are arguing with him. They're like, we think you're demon-possessed. And he's like, I'm not demon-possessed. And look at verse 56 with me. It says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he would saw it and was glad. Now, what's the problem with that? Abraham lived over 2,000 years before Jesus was alive. So they don't like that. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went into the temple. So draw the comparisons here, right? God appears to Moses in the burning bush, said, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I have come to you to lead my people out. When they ask, who sent you? Say, I am that I am. Jesus now is the God-man, God in the flesh. God become a human, is on the planet. And they're like, who are you? And he's like, I was hanging out with Abraham, and he loved me. And they're like, you're not even 50. Abraham died 2,000 years ago. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Use the exact same name, exact same wording. I am that I am. <laughs> so they, they did what you normally would do if somebody claimed to be God. They picked up stones to stone him to death because that's blasphemy. But the great thing about that is this. Jesus is telling these people he's God in the flesh. And so all the incredible stuff we just talked about as it related to God, the awesomeness, the power, the potential, the nearness, the understanding, the closeness, Jesus is all those things because Jesus is God who became a man. That's why we follow him. That's why he's worth following. He's not just like, hey, he's got this figured out a little bit better than the rest of us. No, he's separate with all the potential of the God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And he's close and near with all the opportunity that the God who sees and hears and understands you. Now let's get back to Exodus chapter 3. Here's what's awesome about this. 
God tells Moses his name, and it's connected to this idea that God says he is who he is and has no comparison. And then God says this at the end of chapter three. This is how I am to be remembered for all generations. So here's what God is saying about himself. I am to be remembered throughout all generations as the one who has no equal. I am to be remembered throughout all generations as the one to whom there is no comparison. Every person who has ever lived on the earth will know God as the incomparable one. Isn't that awesome? There's 80-year-olds and there's 8-year-olds who will know God as the one who has no equal and no comparison. That, like, that's incredible to me. Here's what else. It's been going on for thousands of years. This thing where the people of God proclaim him to have no equal. This thing where the people of God proclaim him to be the incomparable one. And it's this cool little part that we get to play in 2022, where we get to gather, we get to be in community, we get to walk by faith, and we get to proclaim to the world that he still has no equal. That's why we're here. It's like we're just this little reminder to the world, to all mankind, he's still got no equal. He's still incomparable. We're, we're just letting y'all know, like he's still doing it. He's still beyond your understanding, incomparable in any other way, no equal on any level. He's still beyond our understanding. He's still working in and through and on behalf of his people. And we still proclaim his goodness. Amen. Uh, we're going to finish today there. And then we're going to say next week, like I said, the response to that information that God is who he says he is. So let's go ahead and pray.